that, that two weeks from tomorrow, we celebrate something. What do we celebrate? Our Savior's birth. Amen. And one week from today, so next Sunday, we are actually having our special Christmas service. And it's been proven that people are more willing to say yes to an invitation to church at this season of the year than any other time of the year. So if you know people that don't go to church, perhaps that live in the area or family, or people that don't even know the good news, this would be a wonderful time to invite them to church. So I want to encourage you to do that. That's December 17th, next Sunday, and we're going to be having a service right here with kids involved and a bunch of other stuff, so you won't want to miss it. Um, today, I am looking at part two of our three-part mini-series, and it's a mini-series, for those of you that know me, know how many it is, if I can ever do something in three times. Uh, so this is part two of a three-part series. If you weren't here for part one, you can get that in the sound department from Brother Luke. He would be willing to help you. Uh, the idea is this, that for some, Christmas is a wonderfully fun and exciting time. It's a time of nostalgia, of family, of connections, they, they just love Christmas time. But for some other people, Christmas is a painfully challenging time because of things that have happened in their past. And the reason it can be so challenging is that they are haunted by things. And so this series that I'm talking about actually was named as a general series, The Ghosts of Christmas Past. That's kind of what we're looking at. And the reason why I've said that is I want us to look at the things of our past that we actually carry with us into our present that if we don't allow God to deal with it, it will actually impact and change our very future. So last week I looked at the ghost of past offenses. That was kind of where I went last week. This week I want to look at the ghost of past shame. And these are things that can haunt us on a day-by-day, night-by-night level. Um, I have actually defined shame for you. For those of you that take notes, uh, this is not a great definition. This is not Webster's definition. But this is kind of how I feel about it. Shame is a soul-crushing, identity-warping emotion. Look at that again. Shame is a soul-crushing, identity-warping emotion. It's, it's, a, it's an assessment, a feeling, a judgment that we make about ourselves. In fact, how many of you can remember as a child hearing your parents perhaps, or maybe your grandparents, grandma and grandpa, or maybe your teacher would say to you at some point, you did something, and they would say to you, shame on you. How many of you ever have a recollection of that? I think probably most of us have. And the truth is, if it's a one-time incident, it happens, and life goes on, you kind of let it roll off your back and it's a no big deal. But when it happens again and again and again, you begin to not just hear it said, it begins to be a sense of identity that you wear. You, you, you hear it on a regular basis, almost a daily basis, that you are unworthy. You're unacceptable. 
you're shameful. And there's something that begins to grip our soul that makes us think and feel this way. That somehow, in fact, this, this would be a broader definition for me. If I were to define the idea of shame, it would be this. I'm not enough. I'm not enough on any level. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not bright enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm just not enough. And to me, that kind of captures the idea that I want to talk to you today about in terms of past shame that comes to haunt us on an almost daily basis. Now, this is something that I deal with, but I suspect the truth is some of you here deal with the same thing. Now, if you're taking notes, I've said this before, but one of the things that I was thinking about as I was praying this morning in our pre-service prayer is that <clears throat> the lies that are spoken over us have a cumulative effect. They add up over a period of time. If something's said once, you can kind of just shrug it off. But when something is said again and again, and then they're added to, those things accumulate in our souls. In the same way, I believe that part of the way God combats those lies is to allow there to be an accumulation of truth. So I'm going to say things to you today that I've said before. I know I've said them before. And part of me, as I was preparing, I'm thinking, why are you repeating yourself? Say something different. Well, truth is truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's a process that happens over a period of time. So you can define it this way. Guilt deals with our behavior, whereas shame deals with our identity. Guilt deals with behavior, shame with our identity. Guilt deals with our performance. I did something wrong, and I feel guilty about it. Rightfully so. If you do something wrong, you ought to feel guilty about it. You did something wrong. I did bad is how guilt defines us. I did bad. But shame doesn't say I did bad. Shame says I am bad. There is something wrong at the core of my being. And for many of us, we tend to connect the what with the who. We connect what we did with who we are. I did bad, therefore I am bad. And if we're honest, all of us as parents, myself included, have fallen into the trap of actually pronouncing judgments over our children that we should not do. We don't merely say to our kid, you did bad. In that moment of frustration, in that moment of anger, we are tempted to say something like, bad boy, bad girl. And if you do that enough, that becomes part of that soul-crushing, identity-warping definition that happens inside of us. Uh, you can think it's a minor thing. Yeah, they understand what I mean. But the truth is, your child is not bad. They might have done something that was bad, but they're not bad. And you ought not be speaking that over them as parents. And I say it as a parent who I'm sure has. I don't necessarily have an act of recollection, but I've said far worse things, I'm sure. And I know that the grace of God is present to bring forgiveness and to change what I have done wrongly. But still, nonetheless, I want to say to you as your pastor, that ought not be the thing that we say to our children. We don't want to somehow create within them the soul angst of shame. 
Uh, the longer I live, the more convinced I am as I deal with people on an almost daily basis that generally most people deal with a sense of feeling ashamed about something. They feel shame in their soul. They feel unwanted. They feel unaccepted. They feel unworthy inside. And those things kind of happen inside of us and we don't even try to do it. They feel like things that they have done in the past disqualify them for their future. They, 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 they don't know what's going on that is going to change things for them. It's not just that I've done wrong, I am wrong. Uh, and to make it worse, shame never lives alone. It always shacks up with fear. Shame doesn't live alone. Fear comes alongside. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but um, I grew up with this sense of impending doom that I fight against on an almost daily basis. Um, I, can, I can tell you that there are times when I sit in the living room with my wife and I will say to her, um, what's wrong? And she'll say, nothing's wrong. Why? I say, I don't know. I just feel like my world's about to explode and I don't know why. It's because I live still, I struggle still with this sense that something is going to explode, my world is going to collapse, my sky is going to fall down, the surest chicken little said it, that something is going to happen. I have done something wrong that's going to cause my world to collapse. I don't even know what it is. I'm not conscious of it. But something's wrong. And I would suggest to you that the core of that feeling is rooted in a shame-based identity. It's where you have taken upon yourself the identity that you are shameful. It doesn't matter whether you even know that you did something wrong. You still feel it inside. Something in the world is wrong. Um, there are times when, um, at least for me, and, and again, I say these things to you uh, just wanting you to understand how it works at least in, in this head in this heart. Um, there are times when I feel like apologizing even though I don't know what I'm apologizing for. Because I have to believe as messed up as I am as a person, as shameful as I am, as unworthy as I am, I must have done something wrong somewhere, somehow. So let me just generally say to you, I'm sorry. And that's how I struggle on a day-by-day -day basis. Finding my identity in God but battling things that have been placed in me over all of these years, things that I have actually embraced myself. When your identity becomes warped by shame, when you take upon yourself this shame-based identity, there are primarily three ways that you deal with it. And I, I kind of want to just give this to you just very, very briefly, and maybe this will help you to understand whether you have some of this in you. The first way that you deal with shame is you become perfectionistic. You want to do things perfectly. You don't want any mistakes. You want to go over the top in how well you do. You want to prove all those words that have been spoken over you all of those years, you want to prove them wrong by proving that you really can do it well. You can do it right. In fact, you don't only can do it well and right, you can do it better than anybody else. So you tend towards perfectionism. The problem with perfectionism is no matter how good you do, it's never good enough. 
You can do it as perfectly as you know how. And there's something in your soul that says it's not good enough. I, I was um, playing ball this week, and I, I'm not doing well. I hurt my shoulder, so I've tried to be careful. I've tried to still keep busy, but I, I thought, well, I don't want to be lazy, so I don't have to play ball. And I know that on that court, I'm probably at best mediocre, probably the worst player out there, maybe second worst, something like that. But I'm playing ball, and the guy on the other team is the best player on the court. I mean, this is a guy who was like one of the stars of Attica's high school back in the day. Now he's older, he's got his own family. But all it means is he's gotten stronger and better, honestly. He's just like, he makes shots that I'm thinking, what? where did that come from? Nobody can shoot that shot. Um, but we're playing ball. I'm on the opposite team. Another guy is guarding me. Every time I go down, I shoot the basket, I make a basket, and he takes my my defender aside to coach him on how to stop me. And I'm feeling pretty good about it. I'm feeling like, whoa, I'm having a good game. Hurt shoulder and all, I'm doing pretty good. My next two shots, I missed. And I, and I said to my team, okay, I'm never going to shoot again. That's it, I'm done. Why in the world am I even playing this stupid game? It's because something inside, it doesn't matter how good you do, it's never perfect. It's not quite good enough. So you tend towards perfectionism. Or number two, you become hypercritical. You become hypercritical first of yourself because you know you're not good enough and nothing you do is going to ever actually measure up. So you become hypercritical yourself, but in turn, you also become hypercritical of others. One of the things I've noticed over the years, and I'm going to use the name, I absolutely mean no judgment. I just noted this and this is a good example that people who are struggling in a very specific area in their life tend to see it in everybody else. So, Jimmy Swaggart would stand and preach against the ills of immorality and going to visit hookers, going to visit pornography shops or whatever, you know, those kinds of things. He would preach against it so strongly, and the truth is, he was battling his own issues. Now, again, I'm not judging Jimmy Swagger. That's not my point. All of us have weaknesses. All of us have struggles. All of us deal with sin in our own lives. That's not my point. My point is we tend to see in other people what's inside of ourselves. Whether it's even there or not, we can see it. And when we see it, we get mad at them because they become like a mirror of our own soul. We get angry at them because they're actually showing us ourselves. And we become hypercritical about things. We get angry. We attack it. We hate them for what's inside of us. And number three, we become self-sabotaging. It's almost like a form of escape. Uh, we focus on the worst case scenario, the worst outcome, and we say things like this. It doesn't matter what I do. Something always goes wrong. Something always happens to ruin my life. They're never going to like me. Nothing I ever try really works. We'll never have a real close, intimate relationship. We go through all of the worst outcomes possible. And then we actually do things to make it happen. We sabotage our own life. We say, well, this is, it'll probably never work. And so we do something to make sure it doesn't work. As if to prove that I am shameful. To prove that I am a loser. And so we become self-sabotaging. We validate our feelings of shame. And i got to tell you, that's why Christmas 
can become so crazy. Uh, you're sitting around the Christmas dinner table, and seemingly out of nowhere, your mom lashes out at you for no reason at all. And you wonder, where did that come from? Or you open your Christmas gifts, everything seems to be going good, everybody sits down at the table, somebody says something, and dad jumps up and he storms out of the house and just is gone. Yeah, that seems to happen every Christmas. I don't know what the deal is. Or you invite your family to your house, and you do your best. I mean, you, you put the silverware on the right side, and the fork goes on the left side, and the knife goes on the right side, and you always put the tines of the knife faced in so that they're not facing your opponent on your other side who you want to stab because he's taking your food. You've got everything just, just perfect. And you sit down to a meal that you have done your best, and your mother-in-law sits there and picks it apart and tells you everything that you didn't do quite right. And you're thinking... What in the world is the deal? I did my best. Christmas can bring out the crazy. Um, I, I read a story. I think it was I read, read or heard one or the other. I don't know which, honestly. Uh, I think it was read a story recently about a woman who was a mother who was sitting out on her patio, her back patio, and her children two children were in this little kiddie pool. So these are young kids. And she's sitting on there doing the mail, and her husband's just reading the paper, and they're drinking their coffee. She has her tea. And everything's going wonderful. It's just a beautiful day. It's like, you know, 72, 73 degrees. It's a perfect day on every way. She's reading her mail. He's reading the paper. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she stands up and begins to scream at her children to just shut up. You're making too much noise. The whole neighborhood can hear you. And then she turns and starts yelling at her husband for not helping her and not standing and supporting her. And why does he leave his papers everywhere anyways? And she runs into the house, into the bathroom, and she locks the door. The husband looks at his kids, and they look at him, and they're crying. It's like, what happened? I don't even understand what's going on. He goes to the door, and she's got the door locked, and he finally says, if you don't open the door, I'm going to knock it down. She opens the door, and she comes out, and some time passes, things calm down, and he says to her, what was the deal? She says, I have no idea where that came from. I don't understand it. He goes, well, what, what was going on? What were you thinking? She says, I wasn't thinking anything. It came out of nowhere. And finally, he went out to the porch, to the patio, picked up what she was doing, brought it back in, and started looking through it. And they finally realized she had opened an invitation for her children to a birthday party. And it had this one line in it. Parents must swim with their children and without conscious thought she went back to the days 30 years previous when her mother would say to her you're so fat you shouldn't ever go swimming and if you do you need to wear a burlap sack and all of a sudden all of that rose up within her without conscious thought and she thought I can't wear a swimming suit in front of all these other perfect moms stuff comes to the front that has been planted in us from generations ago even. And we don't even remember it. But it has created for us this soul-crushing, identity-warping emotion. Today, it is my honest prayer, and I have spent time over these messages praying that God would begin a process in us of allowing our identity to be rooted in Him, not in shame. Not in that stuff. If you have your Bibles, would you open up to Isaiah 54? That was all introduction, by the way. Now we're actually going to do the message. Isaiah 54. 
Isaiah 54 and verse 4. I want you to see it. It's going to be up on the screen if you don't have Bibles. Isaiah is in the Old Testament for those of you that are looking. It's one of the bigger prophetic books. Isaiah 54 verse 4 says this. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced. For you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Widowhood, in this case, actually reflects a sense of death. I've lost something dear to me. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman who was forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused. This is the good news I want to talk to you about today. This is the gospel itself. God not only forgave you all of your sins and cleansed you of unrighteousness, He made you part of his family. He gave you his family name. When you got married as a woman, most often, I know it doesn't always happen that way anymore, but most often when you get married, you take upon yourself your husband's name. And here Isaiah is saying, you're going to get the privilege of taking the name of your husband, who is God, your maker, your redeemer. That's the good news that God wants you to hear over this Christmas season when you are haunted by the shame of your past. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's first epistles. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He doesn't merely say that you're forgiven. He says that you are brand new. There has never been anyone like you before. I don't just mean that you're unique in your fingerprint. I don't just mean that you're a unique human being. I mean that you are unique among all of creation. Because you don't only bear the image of God, you actually bear the presence of God. You have God's seed within you. That's what he says. The seed which is indestructible, eternal, immortal, invisible. That seed of God dwells inside of you. And you have tasted of the divine. You are like no one else. There's never been a race of being like you before. He has made you a new creation. All things are passed away. They've, they're gone. They're done. In God's economy, they have passed away. And all things have become new. You have a new identity. You are a new person. But it starts with recognizing what is in me of the old way of thinking and the realization that God has declared something new and better about me. It starts with recognizing what was there. And then saying, God, you are doing something even better. In the Old Testament, God had a people who were called the Israelites, the Jews. And those people 
that he raised up out of nowhere. He took a man by the name of Abraham and he raised up out of him not only a family, but a tribe, a nation of people that were so numerous, they began to threaten other people and they were taken into slavery. They were slaves for 430 years. 430 years. That makes our nation dwarf in comparison. If you've been a slave, a part of a family, a tribe of people that have been a slave for 430 years, you are a slave inside and outside. Both are impacted. Uh, I'm a slave. I'm worthless. I am nothing. I am not important. My life is not valuable. I am just a slave. Your parents were slaves. Your grandparents were slaves. Your great-grandparents were slaves. Your great-great-grandparents were slaves. Slavery is in your bones and blood. That's all you are, is you are a slave. But if you know the story, God comes on the scene through Moses. And he sends Moses to Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt. And he says, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Over several days and weeks, finally, Pharaoh lets them go. And they are now free. They're no longer slaves. They are out of Egypt. But how many of you have discovered that it's easier to get out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of you? It's easier to be set free than to feel free inside. And that's kind of what I think God wants to say to you today, is that he has set you free. The problem is we still think like we're slaves. Because when you've been a slave for 430 years, your thinking needs to be changed. Your heart needs to be changed. God can set you free. We still think the same old way. Though they were free physically, they didn't feel free in their own soul. And that's the problem with many of us. We know that Jesus has forgiven us our sins. And we know in our minds that Jesus has set us free. But inside our soul, we're still thinking and feeling like we are bound to all of that past shame that was our identity in life. Shame-based thinking warps our identity. It changes how we think about ourselves, how we feel about ourselves. We still believe something that God has said is no longer true. I want you to hear that. We still believe something that God has said is no longer true. That's what shame-based thinking does inside of us. Now, let me tell you uh, how this has played out in my life, and I want to try to be transparent but not tell you what you don't need to know. Um, and please hear me. I'm not saying this to you so that you will feel bad for me and try to do anything to make up. That's not my point. Honestly, as you will hear in a minute, you couldn't do anything to make up. Uh, but this is just how shame-based thinking works for me. And this is a battle, I believe, that has to be won in the grace of God. It can't be won on a human level. It has to be one on a cosmic level with God himself. Now, I know that God is true and honest. We heard it this morning. I know that God is good. And I believe that. I believe God is good. I believe God is true. I believe God is loving. I believe that God even loves me and he has forgiven me. I believe all of that. That's not my issue. My issue is thinking that God loves me because God is love and he doesn't have any choice. God is love. God has to love. That, that's like part of the definition. He is love. 
my problem is this. I think God loves me. I don't think God really likes me because I'm such a screw-up. Why would you ever like somebody like me? I'm thinking God loved me, he forgave me, and then one day realized what a mistake he made, but he can't take it back now because God doesn't get do-overs. We get do-overs, but God doesn't get do-overs. So God knows that I'm messed up. And he doesn't like that a bit. And I have to do things on a day-by-day level to try to prove to him that his decision wasn't completely bad. That I'm, I'm getting a little bit better. Day by day, I get a little bit better and I get a little bit more spiritual and a little bit more holy. And so God, although it was a bad decision, every day it gets a little less bad. It gets a little bit better. It's okay. Maybe by the time I die, it'll be worth it to you. Maybe if I live to be 120, 200 years old, something like that. Maybe it'll get better. But that's the kind of thing that I deal with on a daily basis. And here's the problem. Even when I get better, even when I do better, even when I do more good stuff, it's never quite good enough because in my own heart and mind, I can convince myself I have mixed motives. Why did I do that? Yeah, and I do this constantly, by the way. This is just a constant thing in my mind that I have to battle. I do something that I think is a good thing. I think about it. I think, oh, that would be nice. And then it could be something as simple as, you know, uh, Buying somebody a coffee down at Bud's. And a coffee, what's a coffee cost? A buck? Buck ten, I think it is, down at Bud's, for those of you that are wondering. So I'm going to buy a coffee down at Bud's for a dollar ten, and I, I'm just sitting talking, about it. I thought it would be a nice thing to just buy him a coffee. The next thing in my mind is, the only reason you're doing this is because you're trying to buy friendship, because they wouldn't like you otherwise. So it doesn't matter even if you do something that you think is good. You have wrong motives. Wrong agenda, so it can't be good. So nothing you ever do is quite good enough. I feel, and that's the key, by the way, is our feelings. And you know that our feelings and our minds can lie to us. But I feel somehow unacceptable and unworthy of love and never enough. Not for God and not for you. I feel in my own soul that no matter what people might say otherwise, I am not good enough as a pastor. So every single week that I stand up here, I have absolutely no doubt that I've disappointed some of you. I have no doubt that some of you came here with a specific agenda of what you desperately needed from God, and if you only had a good pastor, you would get it. But you got me. So what can I do about it? You just kind of suck it up and keep going. What else are you going to do? You do your best. Every Sunday I stand up here, I know that you want more than me. That's all the stuff that goes through my mind on a day-by-day basis. And when someone does say something nice, like last Sunday I got done preaching, and it was, honestly, I got done and I thought, what an abysmal day. I should have stayed home in bed. Um, I get done, somebody came up to me and said, thank you so much, that was a really good word. Afterwards, somebody met me in another place in the church and said, I really needed to hear this. This was just so confirming. It's, a couple people did. Every single person that said something nice, in my mind is this thought, you're just trying to be nice to this pitiful man. Um, over the years, people have written me notes. Most, honestly, if I were to actually count them, which I don't, most of them probably are nice notes. 
thank you for doing this. You know, we, we get notes saying, you know, thank you, things like that. Some, some people are really, really good. They actually enumerate what they're thankful for. Others just as a general, thank you for being a good pastor, etc. I have collected notes over the years. I have never kept the good notes. I only keep all the critical notes. All the ones that say you have the spirit of the Antichrist, you are the second coming of the beast. Uh, you know, I've kept those notes. And not often, but once or twice a year, just, just for good measure, I will open up my file and I'll read all those notes as a way of reminding me this is how God really sees me. So all of that's to say to you, and again, I'm not asking for your pity, I'm not asking for anything. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I am saying to you, all of us, I do it and you do it, struggle with shame-based issues. We have stuff that goes on inside of our own soul that can control how we think and how we feel, that can make it hard to receive love. So that inside, I feel like I'm not a good pastor, I'm not a good father, I'm not a good husband, I'm not a good man. So why in the world would God put me in this place? Because all he has is broken people. Didn't have anybody better. And I, I don't mean that you're as bad as me. I mean you're worse than me. We're all bad. We all got junk. We all got stuff. Every one of us in the room, I don't care how good you look and how much you're looking at me like, oh, you pitiful little thing. The truth is you got the same stuff inside of you. You don't feel good enough. Apparently you're not enough. You're not enough for your kids. You're not enough for your spouse. You're not enough for your employer. You're not enough. And you feel some of that same stuff. You feel inadequate. Now, I could blame my upbringing. I could blame my mom and my dad. I could blame uh, my friends growing up. I could blame people in church who said such horrid things like I have mentioned here today. I could blame all of that. But the truth is, and this is what I wanted to get to, and this is why I even said this. The truth is this. We have an enemy of our soul who wants to destroy us. We have someone, a real being, whose name is Satan or Lucifer. And he is the father of all lies. And he wants to breathe upon every lie that you have ever believed and cause it to be your identity. And so that our battle isn't with people who have said things because the truth is when they've said things, it's coming out of their own brokenness. Our battle is not with them. Our battle is with him who is the father of lies. Um, I live in a fallen world with an enemy who wants to keep me in slavery. Pharaoh is a type of the enemy. He wanted to keep, it didn't matter what God did, he wanted to keep the people in slavery. But there comes a point when God offers the firstborn, and in this case, God offered his own firstborn. And that changed the whole fabric of time and history. God came to set us free through the death of his firstborn. Um, my story is my own. You have your own story. It ought not surprise you that I have some of that insecurity. You have some insecurity. You have some fears. You, you have some shame. Uh, how many of you um, can remember uh, when Mother Teresa died? 
Do you remember what came out? Her diaries. I don't know if any of you guys ever read any of the excerpts from her diary. Unbelievable. She was the most fearful, insecure, anxious person you could ever imagine. So much so that when they were going to talk about making her a saint, the thing that came into question is no saint should struggle with those kinds of doubts and fears. Why should it surprise us that Mother Teresa is the same as us? And yet she still served God. She still went on and God used her. Because this is the kind of stuff we all deal with. So in the end, we either have to try hard to prove everybody wrong, or we have to opt out of the human race altogether and just kind of quit and collapse under the pressure. Or is it possible? Is it possible there's a better way? Is it possible God actually has something that he can do about it? I believe the solution is this, and this is the simplest solution I could come to. I tried to make it one simple point, and that's what it is. I believe the solution is to get the focus off of us and put the focus back on him. I think that's the only solution. That's the only way to be free from shame is to take our eyes off of ourself and put our eyes on him. He is the only worthy one. Here's my point, and I know this is going to sound. When you think things about yourself, like I think I'm not enough as a pastor, can I tell you the truth? I'm not enough as a pastor. I'm not. When you think you're not enough, you're not enough. When you think you're bad, the truth is there's a little part of you that is bad because you do stupid things just like I do stupid things. Some of what we think is true, but then he blows upon it and makes it a worse lie, which is why we can't put the focus upon ourselves. We have to put the focus upon God himself. You say, well, I'm a bad person. Well, you, you kind of are. And so am I. But he's a good person. And he has paid the price for it all. That's what this is about. Put your focus upon Jesus. We're not created by God adequate in ourselves. We are only adequate when we're in him. And he is in us. We are not enough. We're only enough when we're in him. And he is in us. That's the only way we're enough. That's the only way we're good enough or smart enough. I deal with people all the time that are so much smarter than I am. I have people, friends, families that are like brilliant. And people want to argue with them. I don't even argue with them. It's not worth it. I'm not smart enough. But what I can do is I can tell them about Jesus, who is enough, who's good enough. And so every once in a while, I, I was this uh, yesterday, actually, in a, um, I was just having coffee down at Bud's, and I was talking with a gentleman that I've met recently. He's come back to the area. He lived in the area, moved away, and now he's come back to the area. And he was talking with some chagrin about the fact that he fathered an illegitimate child back when he was 19 years old, and his girlfriend was 17. She came from a well-to-do family, and that family was angry about it, would have nothing to do with it, they moved away, etc., etc. He just was reunited within the last year, I believe it is, with his daughter. But there's a sense of regret, a sense of shame. And I was able to share a testimony of God's grace, that God can come in and can save the worst scenario, the worst situation you can imagine. And God can take that which the enemy purposes for evil, and he can make it good. 
if we'll give it to him. God gives us opportunity to see his identity put inside of our soul. If you make the focus on yourself, you're going to always end up coming up short. We have to move the focus off of who I am and who I'm not, who I think I am and who I think I'm not. We have to move the focus off of that and onto him who is everything. And if you keep your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, he despised the shame. One translation says something like this. He snubbed his nose at your shame. He looks shame in the eye and says, you have no hold on me. That's the kind of thing that our Savior has done for us. We can't truly get to the I am's until we first deal with the he is's. Who he is helps us to know who we are. Until we get that right, we will never be whole in life. And this is not something that happens usually all in one fell swoop. It's a part of a press. It says, you shall know the truth, and the truth, it doesn't say, shall set you free. The Greek is very clear. It says, the truth shall make you free, which is a process. It's over time. You get freer and freer. The fact that you're not completely free today ought not surprise you. Until the day that Jesus returns and we behold him as he is, at that point, we shall become like him. Until that time, we're becoming more like him as we let his identity be absorbed into us. The Israelites, 430 years, God saves them. He sets them free. They're out of Egypt. But it took a long time to get Egypt out of them. A long time. In fact, Years after he brought them in a marvelous deliverance out of Egypt, years later, he has this to say to them in Joshua chapter 5, verse 9. Just, just listen to this. You can look it on the screen. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today, this day, this day, not when my parents finally die and what they've spoken over me is finally gone, null and void, not when I'm finally divorced and I can get away from this abusive situation where I have to believe those lies. Not until finally uh, I can go through a bunch of counseling sessions and get free. No, today, this day, I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal to this day. <coughs> I have rolled away. It says the reproach in the New King James, but I like the New Living Translation. I have rolled away your shame. I have rolled away your shame. Gilgal literally means rolled away. And I felt like the Lord said, as I was preparing, in my heart, I felt like the Lord said, today, the sanctuary of Family Life Church should be renamed Gilgal. That God can roll away your shame if you're willing. He's willing to change it forever. Now, what I want to do, and again, I know that this Christmas, uh, God's desire would be that you end up with a new place to live. And he'd like to give you a new house. And that house has a name, it's called Gilgal. I know that. I know that in my heart. I know that in my spirit. That's what God is saying. But he is saying to you, it's today. It starts today. Saying, I don't want to live under that old way anymore. I don't want to live with the lies spoken over me. I don't want to live with lies that I have come to believe. Maybe nobody ever said to you, shame on you, but somehow you've absorbed that into your being. The words weren't there, but the sense was there. And God is saying today, today, 
I am rolling shame off of you. I am rolling it off. Someone may have said shame on you, but God's saying I'm taking shame off of you. That's what he's saying. So what I want to do this morning, a little bit different than what I had attended, uh, I, I want you to bow your heads with me if you would. And I know for some of you, you don't like this, but I'm asking you to do Bow your heads, close your eyes, keep listening to me, but allow God to come near to you in your heart. Close yourself off from your neighbor. Don't worry about what he's doing or she's doing. In fact, uh, don't even you know, be touching if you can help it. This is just, I want this between you and God. I'll, for a minute, I want you to use your God-given imagination. And I want you to think about yourself carrying this load, this burden that you've carried for your lifetime. It's accumulated because of things that you've done that you know you shouldn't have done. Lies you've told, things you've taken, uh, stuff that you have done that has been wrong. It's even been evil. Immorality. You name it. It's all been there. And it's like a weight that has rested upon you. You try to stand up under it. You try to get better, but something else happens. And I want you to see in your mind's eye, use your God-given imagination, I want you to see God coming near to you right now. Right where you're sitting, God is coming near to you. And he is taking that load, that backpack that's been upon you, and he's lifting it off of your back. And he's taking it and he's putting it in this canoe called grace. And that that canoe is pushed out into the stream and it's a fast-flowing stream and he's rolling it down the river. It's gone. It's no longer yours to bear. Shame was on you. But God, by his power, by his grace, by his goodness, today, not later, today, today, shame is rolling off of you. Your enemy would seek to come in and say, shame on you. But your focus isn't on you. Your focus is on what he's doing. He's already absorbed all of your shame on the cross. Let that truth soak into your soul today. You are not what you did in the past. You are not what others said you were. You are not what you feel in the dark places of your own soul. You are not what somebody else did to you. Who are you? You are who Christ says you are. You are free. You're forgiven. You're changed. You're redeemed. You're healed. You're blessed. You're chosen. You are acceptable. You are new and a wonder to behold. C.S. Lewis in his essay, Weight of Glory, says that if we could ever see one another the way we really are in the spirit realm, we would be tempted to bow down and worship one another. God's glory dwells in you. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. The old has gone. And you are new.
you're out of Egypt, and Egypt is rolling off of you. You're out of shame, and shame no longer has place in you. Because today, the power of God is rolling shame away. No more condemnation. No more feeling like you're not enough. Take the focus off of you right now and put your focus on Him. We are Christ-centered in this moment and in our lives. And when feelings of inadequacy start to rise up, I say the truth. I'm adequate in Him because He's adequate. When lies arise and say, this is just an exercise, you say, no, God said, I am rolling your shame away. God said that. Listen to these words again. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused. As we come upon this Christmas season, just two weeks from today, wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't you love it, if this Christmas season something could be different? If the truth that God has spoken over you could have taken such deep root that you are changed. You approach your family different. You no longer approach it like a victim and I can't do anything about it. You approach it in the security that you have in Christ. You no longer embrace the lies of what you did in your past, which are all forgiven and cleansed. You no longer wear your identity as shame or reproach. Instead, you are dearly loved of God. That's what God wants to do for us this Christmas. So I want to pray for you. If you would stand with me. And ask you again, just keep your eyes closed for a moment. If, and again, I don't know who this is for. I'm believing it's for somebody. I know it's for me. So I stand among you in that way. But if you're able, and if this is a message that resonates within your own heart, this is something that God is speaking to you, and you've recognized that you actually deal with this, I'm going to ask you just to kind of raise your hands in a receiving mode and just say, God, I need this. Father, I ask you, in the name of the strong one, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Maker of heaven and earth, the God over all, I'm asking you to come near right now and to cause shame to roll off our backs 
and to cause us to be free servants of the living God. And even more than that, you have called us your very children, sons and daughters of the living God. And Father, today, we want lies to be shed off of us. Just break them off. Let chains be broken in Jesus' name. Things that have been said, things that have been done, things that have been intimated, where we have either assumed it based upon that, or they've been meant that way. But Father, chains are being broken in Jesus' name. In the strong name of Jesus, we declare freedom. Freedom. Freedom for our souls. An identity that is established and secure in you. It's no longer about how good we are. It's about how good you are. It's about your kindness, your love, your acceptance. You have made us accepted in the beloved. You have made us more than enough. Because when I am weak, your strength, which is always there, comes leaping in like the Calvary. And you, when we are weak, make us strong. Because our strength is in you. Lord, let that name be spoken over us. Lord, in the book of Revelation, it says, you give us a name that no one can know. Lord, let us hear in our own soul that name. I don't mean get weird about it, but Lord, let us know that you have spoken something over us that the enemy himself does not know and can never know. It's almost like it's your pet nickname for us. Lord, I remember... uh, over the years with Karen and I, when we have dated, when we've been together, we, we would write to one another or we would call one another and we would call each other these nicknames that expressed our love and our devotion to one another. Lord, in my heart, I feel like you're saying that's what you're doing in us, that you are my beloved and I see you differently than you see yourself. And I want you to see yourself the way I see you. Lord, let that be the encounter that we have today. And let this Christmas season, Lord, be better than any we have ever had because we're not the same. Lord, I know that in many of our cases it's going to continue to be a process because we have an enemy who comes back, just like the enemy came back to Christ to see what else he could do. I know we have an enemy, and I know the battle's not over, but I know the battle's been won because you were victorious on the cross. But what you're doing today is just as real. It's even more so. So Lord, let that somehow be something we embrace in our own souls. That we are free children of the living God. No longer slaves to shame and fear. And let this Christmas be a time of increased, greater joy, greater peace than ever before and a joy and a peace that we not only feel and receive but we give it away let that be our Christmas as we celebrate our Savior we ask in the name of Christ amen amen thank you the Lord bless you as you go